Good morning, everybody. Let us open in prayer, and then we'll continue through our study in the book of Acts. Father, we come before you to herald your word, to proclaim your word, to to dive into your word, to glean from it, and be a fruitful congregation. We pray, Lord, this only is possible by your Holy Spirit coming into our hearts and our souls, uh, changing us and producing fruit. Lord, give us hearts that are willing participants with what you're doing through your word in our congregation today. Amen. So we're continuing our study through the book of Acts, and we get to Acts chapter 6, which this was not pre-planned. Well, the rest of Acts chapter 6 is largely about the deacons, and then Stephen's speech is Acts chapter 7. And so... In the Lord's providence, here I am. Uh, Out of those seven men chosen, Stephen will become the prominent one. But my parents didn't spell my name right. Uh, It's with a V. And so it's close enough. And so what we want to look at today, and I want to remind everybody that as we're going through the book of Acts, uh, John Gray has mentioned this as he's gone through, it would be very helpful to understand how we're studying Acts if you were to read it every week or at least reread you know, up until where we got up until this point, um, which would be, you know, five chapters or six chapters up until now. And because we want to study the whole book of Acts systematically in a way where we're seeing it as one consistent story in the rest of Scripture. And primarily, that would be uh, looking at the book of Acts as the fifth book of the New Testament, like a new Pentateuch. And so I want to reestablish what we're looking for in the book of Acts. And that's summarized. If you were at Rock Campus Fellowship, it would have been like four years ago now, um, we did a 26-week study through the book of Acts. And you could summarize the book of Acts in one one verse. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus tells his disciples, Wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. Then you will be my witnesses in all Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so the book of Acts is the only New Testament book we get with church history canonized as scripture. So we get other epistles to churches, and we get a little bit about their daily life, and we get a little insight about things that need corrected of of what was going on. But the book of Acts is canonized, the only church history we see that is canonized. And so if you compare that to the Old Testament uh, narrative of Israel, there's some things that, that play in and Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 10 tells us very clearly some things through the uh, Old Testament survey of, of Israel was a warning for us, don't do this. Hey, don't make golden calves. Hey, don't become idolatrous. Hey, don't let your hearts go astray. And there's very clear warnings about the uh, Old Testament narrative of Israel and what we should not do, but yet we see in uh, Jesus summarizes the whole Old Testament that it's about him. And so it's not the Old Testament narrative of Israel isn't all about what we should not do. That makes sense. And so when we look at the book of Acts, it's not a book warning us completely about what we should not do. Now there's Ananias and Sapphira, which we studied. Don't be like them. Unless you want the same, unless you want the same fruit. Unless you want the, the Lord to do the same thing and strike you down. But I don't think that's what we're going for. And so, largely, the book of Acts is a model of, of the church and how 
growth happens, how the kingdom of God is, is flourishing through the church, through the preaching of the word, through service, through uh, being at body, through evangelism. Um, but largely, we just, Jesus calls that as being witnesses of Christ. And so being a witness is not primarily evangelism. Being a witness is testifying about Christ in all of life. And so up until this point in Acts, you might say it's been largely organic growth. And so that doesn't mean it's not organized. Jesus set up a structure. Here's 12 apostles. These are the elders in Jerusalem. And it wasn't so organic that in, in chapter, uh, or the beginning of chapter 2 of Acts, in a chapter 1 where Judas' Judas's spot is gone, they didn't say, well, we'll just rearrange a, little, a couple little things. And, uh, and, you know, the 11 of us can handle the responsibilities of 12, and we'll just do that for a while. They don't do that. It's large, it is organized to say, we need somebody to fill this spot. Judas was the money keeper. He collected money and, and uh, distributed to the poor and did a lot of things like that. Somebody had to fill a spot. So it's largely we see is this organic growth. And what I mean by organic or natural is that what you just see in the hearts of the men and the women, they're just doing. I don't mean that it was just like a free-for-all and they did whatever they want. I mean, in Jeremiah 31, it says in the New Covenant, I will write my law on your hearts and it will be within you. And that's what they're doing. And so, <clears throat> um, so we see that a little bit in where it says in Acts chapter 2, verses 42, 43, where it says they're meeting for fellowship daily, they're, they're listening to the apostles' teaching daily, and they're breaking bread daily, which was... Uh, a way of saying that they were having communion daily. So there's no command that we have to have communion da daily or have the Lord's table daily, but they were doing that. But later on in Acts chapter 20, uh, we see that Paul's summoning the, the elders of Ephesus and, and they just had the Lord's table. They just broke bread, it says, uh, when they met on the first day of the week. And so there's no command to do it every day. There's no command to do it only one day, but just looking at the progression through Acts, it does seem to get a little bit more organized and structured the farther we progress. And so um, we want to look at that because we come into Acts chapter 6 where there is a problem within the church in Jerusalem where needs need to be met. And there was because of a, you might say because of a lack of organization, that there were uh, widows, the Hellenistic widows, who were Greek-speaking, weren't getting weren't getting uh, treated fairly. <clears throat> and so what the apostles were doing uh, up until this point, they were preaching the word faithfully, they taught regularly, they were making disciples, and the church grew, right? Uh, they were faithful in persecution, faithful in community, and God was pleased to give them growth. And so I want to talk a little bit, or at least work it in here, about how church growth works biblically versus Maybe you might think of a modern church growth movement. And so Matthew 21, 43, before Jesus is, uh, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, he starts telling parables. And the parable of the, the hired servants in the vineyard, uh, I quote Christ here, that therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Jesus doesn't make claims that I'm going to give take away the kingdom from these people, and you guys seem to have a better church growth model, so I'm going to give you guys more fruit. He says the people who are, are faithful. Um, 
again, uh, even closer to his crucifixion in Matthew 25, is the parable of the talents. When one servant, one hired servant, was given five, one was given two, one was given one, and the one that was faithful with five produced five more and eventually got the one. So he had 11 in the end uh, to manage and to steward because the one that was unfaithful uh, was given to the, to the one with, with 10. And so Christ even says, he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so he was faithful in little and he will be faithful in much. And so the point is, God doesn't bless those who aren't faithful. And so we could look at church growth movements, we could look at systems, we could look at leadership seminars, we could do flyer campaigns every week, but it wouldn't necessarily matter if we don't have the church growth and the faithfulness that God wants us to have. And so that doesn't mean it's always natural, and it doesn't mean having an organized system is bad either. And so in Scripture, spontaneity is not always opposed to structure. And so you guys remember Basilel? Everybody knows Basilel, right? It's probably your favorite, favorite Old Testament character. Basilel. Bezalel. Um, it could be Bezalel. I don't know how to pronounce words. Um, but he should get more credit than he did. In Exodus 35, as Moses gets the commands and the instructions from the Lord on the, on the mountain, he brings them down and he says, uh, it's ten chapters uh, broken up into the first five chapters are Moses is saying, God instructed that the temple has to be like this, has to have these ornaments, they have to have these curtains, and on the curtains it has to have this many rings, and they've got to be made of gold, and when you make the ark it's going to be this size, and there's going to be rings, and those rings are going to be made out of acacia wood and laid it in gold, and then there's going to be a pole, and five chapters of what Moses hears from the Lord. But Moses doesn't build the temple. It doesn't seem like Moses really does any work. Uh, in that regard, he doesn't build anything. Bezalel is the one, uh, Exodus 35. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord is called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has, <clears throat> and he has filled him with the spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, for work as a, skilled, as a skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Ohaliab, again, I could be pronouncing that wrong, uh, the son of Ahimeshach, of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver, or by a designer, or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, or by a weaver, or by any sort of workmanship or skilled designer. And then the next five chapters are mirroring what Moses heard on the mountain, is that these people made it, as Moses had instructed them. But the point is that they were filled with the spirit to do this. These were men who were, they didn't just were like, oh, let's think, let's build a temple. That sounds like, or a tabernacle, that sounds like a good idea. And then uh, they just got to work. I, th I wish the scriptures told us how long it took to build the tabernacle. Um, the best I could find is some people out of from no authority say it took about like nine months to a year. But uh, I'm not sure. And so the spirit was working with them in preparing and teaching others in this craftsmanship and the skill 
to build the tabernacle. And so the Lord had ordained that, and it took skill, it took diligence, it took the ability to teach uh, in service for the construction of the tabernacle for a period of time. And so it wasn't this spontaneous thing that happened. It was a move of the Spirit that sometimes we see might look spontaneous, but is moving towards an order, towards a structure that could be sustained. And so uh, worship can be spontaneous, right? You should worship spontaneously. You should worship as the Lord directs you. Now, I would give you some just wise counsel if the Lord directs you to shout for joy while you're at work and you're a librarian or something. You might want to just hold that until your lunch break or something. Um, but spontaneous worship should happen, right? But at 10.30, we meet every Lord's Day and we worship. You've got it. You could be in the Spirit and ready for that. You don't have to be in the Spirit to be, I don't feel like worshiping this morning, so I guess I'll attend, but the Spirit's not really moving, so I guess I'll just not sing. That's not how it works. That's not what the Lord ordains. That's not his design. There are spontaneous times of worship. There's spontaneous times of prayer. You see a need, you meet somebody, pray for them, right? But there should be structured prayer. That's spontaneous, you know, um, um, off the cusp out of the spirit moves prayer, but we have the Lord's prayer as a pre-written prayer. If you don't know what to pray, well, there you go. The Lord gave you an outline, the Lord's prayer, right? Uh, just a little social commentary. A lot of spontaneous prayer we see is a lot of, Lord, just help us to just, Lord, be, Lord, love you, Lord, just help us to worship you as Lord, Lord. And we just fill ums with Lord and just. And so sometimes, pre-written prayers, it's good, to, good practice to journal, to write out prayers and keep a prayer journal to keep you focused on, on what the Spirit has already done in you. And so a lot of times when the Spirit is moving, we get things that are seeming spontaneous or he's opening our eyes and they're new for us. Um, and we, like, if, we, if it was uh, something we're praying for, then we should write it down and journal it so that we could be reminded to do that and continue, right? Not just pray once, but be as the um, the the persistent widow, and I think that's Luke 18. And so we have a lot of things that are seemingly spontaneous, and then, uh, but usually spontaneity is is not sustainable. And so in Acts chapter six, we're seeing where God is ordaining and providentially supplying a problem where there's going to be more official church offices. And so, um, that's what the occasion gives to you in, in Acts chapter 6. And so, it's almost universally accepted that in Acts chapter 6, these are the first deacons. And that's throughout church history, and that's cross-denominationally. But they never say that they're deacons. And so, we want to look at what is a deacon, uh, what do they do, and why do we even have qualifications? Um, and so... In this instance, there are men being raised who the church is putting their stamp of approval on, and it's a public office. This isn't just, hey, there's a little bit of an issue. Can you guys, like, handle this? No, these people are being raised up. They, the apostles ask the community, hey, seven people. We need seven men who can do this. Given the amount of people we have, we need seven. And, uh, and the apostles, they aren't meeting in a back room and saying, well, I saw this guy. That They probably knew these people, and then discussed later. It doesn't give us real insight. That would have been wise. 
but the people already knew that these were men of good repute. They already, the congregation already knew these were men filled with wisdom and filled with the spirit. And so uh, the office of deacon is rather curious because we actually never get a job description. We don't know what they do scripturally. You can't turn into the Bible and say, this is what a deacon does. Uh, so what is a deacon? The Greek word is diakonos. And if you use something like blue letter Bible or you use a concordance and you look at that word, most of it does not refer to the office of a deacon or the public office of a deacon. Um, all throughout the New Testament, it's translated as servant or, or minister. Um, Paul himself calls him a minister or diaconist of the word. Um, and, and, and then just all throughout Jesus' parables and, and especially in the Gospels, we see the same word used for just a normal servant. And so a, de- a deacon is one who executes the command of a master, a servant, an attendant, a minister, uh, a waiter, one who serves. Often it's just called a table waiter, a deacon. And so Strong's Concordance adds in there that uh, a deacon, one who by virtue of the office assigned to him by the church, cares for the poor, has charge of and distributes the money collected for their use. And so deacons here in this sense, in Acts chapter 6, are being raised up by the elders of the church, by the apostles, to be a public office to serve in a specific regard. And, and this one is to make sure that the Hellenistic widows are not getting overlooked. And so this was just all pragmatic, right? It was all just like, there's a problem, let's raise them up. And the apostles were like, hey, I think we should like, get more people on board. Well, they didn't really do that. Um, they took the model from the synagogue. And so the, the, the apostles were not making a completely pragmatic decision to raise up specific people who they could entrust with some service. Uh, this, they, if you were to study the early church, especially Acts, they're just following the synagogue model. There's, there's something new going on. The Lord is bringing about the new covenant. He's starting the church. When Jesus said, you know, I will build my church, my congregation, my ecclesia, he's saying we're doing a new thing, but he's not just like throwing out the old, throwing out the, out the pattern, throwing out the model, and just say, that didn't work, let's start over. He's using the same model that should have been fruitful in the old covenant, and that arose kind of organically and naturally. There's no scriptures that say that there should be a synagogue. So if you don't know what, if you don't know what synagogues are, there's the uh, Jerusalem temple where yearly worship was required three times a year for every eligible uh, adult. Uh, mostly men were required. I think the women were as well. But that was just in Jerusalem. You can't travel to Jerusalem every Saturday for Sabbath worship. And so... We have evidence, archaeological evidence, and, and different things that is at least in the third century BC, the synagogues started to take place. And these were people in the, in the temple, you had to be a Levite, you had to be of the, of the lineage of Aaron to be a priest. In the synagogues, they didn't do that. It was largely controlled by the Pharisee party. And it was men who wanted to teach um, and, and disciple and train others. And so, because if you're only going to Jerusalem three times a year, and if you live in a household that doesn't have a, a, a head of household that's really teaching and training or something um, for whatever reason, 
And then these little communities started to pop up, which they called synagogues, where they could learn the Torah. They could teach and train men and women in the law of God and in, in Jewish life. And so we see early models of that maybe happening in, in Ezra and Nehemiah period, but at least for archaeological evidence in the third century BC, we start seeing the actual synagogues being formed with buildings, with a system of training to bring about Jewish life. And so it was ran by the Pharisees. Um, and so in the synagogues, they had men who acted as deacons. They had a head, um, um, even in the synagogues, they had elders, they had a head elder. They normally were ran as it got more organized and uh, less organic, so to speak. It was, they had a board of elders, essentially, and a head elder, and they had deacons. Um, and so... God wasn't going to just throw out the old covenant and bring in something new. Um, he does this all the time Where in Noah. When God makes a covenant with Noah, he told him to be fruitful and multiply. Well, where did we hear that? Well, we heard that a couple chapters ago in Genesis and with Adam, right, when he made a covenant with Adam. Jesus didn't come preaching anything new, so to speak, but the old in a new way. And the best way to, I think, the Apostle John puts this in, in 1 John 2, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So he says it's old, but it's new. But it's not new because it's old, but it's not old because it's new. You got it? Good. And so they, really what the apostles did was take the, the synagogue model and they were running with it. Um, because when Jesus was talking about those who are, are faithful, he'll produce fruit, well, the Jews weren't faithful. They weren't faithful uh, in the old covenant. And so he was giving the new covenant to people who would produce the fruits. And so the apostles knew that the kingdom was going to be taken away from Israel and given to a people, and so they weren't going to start something new, they were starting something new, modeled after something old. And so the deacons were going to arise. I believe that the apostles knew that it was going to get to this point, and they were looking for it. And so there, uh, an issue arose where the apostles said, it's not right for us to go away, to give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. And so that seems pretty noble, right? Like, why don't we, why didn't they, in our modern humanistic way of thinking, why didn't they humble themselves and say, well, they saw a need, or weren't they a little controlling or something because they made other people do it? Why didn't they just do it? They saw the problem. Why didn't they take the initiative? Well, the apostles knew the model that our Lord was, was building and them being the elders and apostles of the church and by the Spirit, they said, it's not right for us to give up preaching, to neglect this office to have another office. It's not what they were called for. And the Lord was using it to, for other people to take initiative and to be raised up. And so the apostles were, in this sense, they were very much team players acting as a body, knowing that if they didn't have an office of a deacon, if they didn't have other men who were raised up to serve, that the whole community would, would be harmed by it that the preaching of the word would be neglected and that eventually spiritual life would be, uh, would be degrading. And so 
essentially what they were saying is we can't do what we do unless you do what you're going to be raised up to do. And so we see in Scripture that all leadership is service, right? But there are different types of service. And so we're all servants. We're all the priesthood of believers. A priest was just a servant in the, in the temple. And so we're all servants, right? Amen. There we go. I'm like, everyone's like, no, not me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're all called to be servants. But there's different areas of servants and there's different offices of, of, of servants in, in leadership. And so what do deacons do? Well, they, they serve. They're table waiters. They're servants. They administer. Uh, they are the practical outworking for the apostles slash elders. And so just think about what wisdom... A lot of times when we're reading through, especially the narrative books, we, we breeze through them and you know, we read through the book of Acts and we're like, wow, that was a crazy time. But it was like, that was 40 years. And you read it in the, over the weekend. And so, you know, or like the, the narrative of Exodus is like, that was 40 years. And, and we, often, we often breeze through it to get the major points, but then we, stop, we don't stop and think about it. So when it says that they were looking for men who were uh, filled with the spirit and filled with wisdom and a good repute, think about what wisdom it would have just taken to serve the amount of people that needed served. They weren't just raising up men. It was like, who's just, who's just willing? Well, willing's got to be part of it. If they said no, they're not the ones. <laughs> Right, and but think about what wisdom it would be to practically work out to make sure that this section of the congregation that was being treated unfairly would be getting the attention that they needed in the daily distribution of the needs. That might include raising up other people to do work for them or to to serve with them. Um, you know, anybody um, anybody can come and scrub the toilets here at GCF. I really believe anybody could. Uh, you might want to keep kids under two from doing it, just out of wisdom, but with a little bit of oversight, I believe they could do it uh, and make sure that they bathe afterwards. But that doesn't mean you want to give a two-year-old the charge of cleaning the toilets and just give them a scrub brush and get on your way, right? And so there are, in the office of deacon, we often see that it would make sense that they're raising up other people to serve with them and kind of administering uh, the, the daily distribution. Even in the model of, of Israel, there was heads of, of hundreds and fifties and, and things like that. And there's no way, there's just no practical way, if you've ever been in, in any real leadership of a lot of people, that that you could actually be in charge of all those people without having other people being raised up and taking initiative. And so what do they do? They serve. Uh, they have to have wisdom. They have to be men of good repute, um, have good character. And so these men are men that the congregation knew were taking initiative. And so it doesn't give us a whole lot of insight of what the men were doing beforehand, but the congregation knew that these were men that were willing to serve and they would be good for the position. And so they were most definitely taking initiative. They were, this is what they were doing already. This is what, they were already servants. They didn't have to plead with them to, hey, can you guys please just help us out? Uh, they were already willing and ready. And so First Timothy um, starts to give us qualifications for deacons. And so, again, Acts 6 just says, men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. 
And the only qual other qualifications we get in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 12, uh, Paul is um, commending Timothy because he's sending him to Ephesus and he's as the elder of the church and to, and to raise up other elders and, and men who would faithfully preach the word. And that includes raising up elders and deacons for the life of the church. And so in 1 Timothy 3, starting at chapter 8, deacons likewise must be dignified. Well, that sounds familiar. That's what, that was on the list in Acts 6. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. The, that word dignified, just to, if you look it up in the King James or the NASB, also means men of dignity, worthy of respect. The, the King James says grave. They're not silly men. Uh, they're not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons, right? If they prove themselves blameless. So he, even Paul was saying right here, let them serve first, and if they're tested, then they can become a deacon. It's not we just throw people in an office and put the stamp of approval as a church on people, and then they serve and we see how they do. These are men who are taking initiative, who are already serving, who have already been tested, and saying, hey, why don't you rise up to the office of deacon as a public servant, as a public minister? Uh, let them be tested first. Um, and if they serve as deacons, they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, also could be translated the women, uh, likewise also must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So why not just raise up anybody? Why not? Why is there qualifications? Can't anybody serve? Isn't everybody supposed to serve? So why do we need public qualifications? First uh, Peter four ten says, "As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace." And so yeah, everybody can serve. Everybody's called to serve. If you're not serving, that would be like a like a red flag, because. Um, the Lord doesn't just say, well, I'm not going to gift this person because I don't want them serving because that would, you know, they're busy or something. Um, no, there's, everyone has received a gift and we use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And so everybody should be serving as, as a body. That means various things. And so some gifts take a higher level uh, in faithfulness some, some gifting, some service takes a higher level of wisdom. Some takes a higher level of vision. Some, some service takes a higher level of money, you know, and such. And so, uh, quite frankly, in the motivational gifts of, that we see in, in Romans 12, you know, there's one of, if you if uh, have the gift of generosity, give generously. Well, I know who uh, may or may not have the gift of generosity based on whether you have a job or not. You can't give generously if you don't have a job, if you don't make money. And so there's some ways to serve that are different and, and require more skill or more faithfulness, more wisdom, uh, more vision, more money sometimes. And so just practically in, in body life, some of us are the eyes, some of us are the mouth, some of us are hands, right? And so deacons need these qualifications because they are serving in a capacity that requires uh, character. Uh, in First Timothy, we see that they can't be double-tongued. They can't say one thing and do another. 
right? They're not addicted to much wine. I've always like, when I looked at, you know, qualifications for elders and deacons, I was like, well, I'll just shoot for deacon because it says that they can't be addicted to much wine. I'll just shoot for that. That's pretty good. Uh, not greedy for dishonest gain, right? These were men who were taking the money they, and putting it in a bank or they were distributing it, and they have to be men with character. They have to be upstanding men in the congregation who you could say, here's the money. Here's a bag of money that we collected. Make sure it's safe. Put it in the bank and, and whatnot, right? They got to take the offering to the bank. They got to uh, distribute that. There was, Paul was collecting money as he traveled for the church in Jerusalem, and it had to get distributed somehow. And Paul wasn't going to do it. Paul wasn't going to be the one that, that built the churches and did all this, and he, was, he wasn't a solo player. He was a, he was a team player. And so deacons, the office, the public office of deacon, you need wisdom, right? First uh, Timothy 3 says, managing their households well. You could usually tell how much leadership or service or wisdom a man or woman has by how their household is ran because those are very practical things. If uh, Those are daily things. Those are whether it's, it's ran smoothly or, or not. Um, if you can't manage your household well, how can you manage other things well? That's a strict qualification for elders, but it's also for, he says, for deacons. And so that takes a lot of wisdom. That takes a lot of, you know, you could actually look at people and you know how much wisdom they have by how their household is, is held together or not. Uh, the office of deacon, the quote, one of the qualifications is you need to be faithful. You have to be tested first, then serve as a deacon. You have to be a husband of one wife. Well, there's a really good, uh, you guys might want to get your pens out and write this down, but I could tell a man's faithfulness by uh, whether he's a one-woman man or not. If he's cheating on his wife or if he's going around uh, with multiple women, I can pretty tell that he's not going to be faithful in other matters. Amen. All right? If you guys need to write that one down, please do. Uh, right? To have an office and hold an office, it says the same thing for the deacons that it does for the elders is, has this man have a good reputation of being faithful? Right? They can't be quitters. Uh, they need to get the job done. There's no excuses. Right? I'm sure if, um, I could just imagine, well, I don't know, I could imagine Paul a little bit better through his epistles, but I could imagine how upset the apostles would be if they raised up these seven men and they're like the Hellenistic Widows are being overlooked. Nobody's given them the daily distribution. There's famine going on. There's a war about to break out in our city. This temple, the Romans are going to come at some time and destroy this temple and sack the city. And they know this is happening. And if the seven deacons are raised up, we're like, well, we didn't go today because it was raining. I was a little tired. I didn't feel like it. I'm sure the apostles would have been rather upset. And those and uh, disqualified themselves, right? It's whatever it takes to get the job done. These are faithful, diligent men. They can't make excuses. Well, it was someone else's job. They, they have to be men who take initiative. They can't quit, right? And then uh, another qualification of the, for the office of deacon is you have to be serious or dignified. And again, First Timothy says that they have to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and so deacons don't have to preach, but, uh, but they could, right? Uh, they would often find opportunity to instruct others. 
And so, although they don't have a public office of teaching, how often do you think it would happen that they would have to hold the mystery of the faith well as they're distributing money or, or needs to widows who their husband died because of persecution or, or whatnot? How often would they have an opportunity to preach the gospel, to speak truth from scripture into people on a daily basis because they're serving? And that's what service opens you up to is, is, is finding real ways to preach uh, and, um, and, to, and to administer the gospel. And so in our gift series, I recommend that everybody go through our, our gift series and we go through the nine charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit, the seven motivational gifts or gifts of temperament, uh, and the seven uh, office gifts. And so that would help you understand a deacon, an elder, and the offices and, and the gifts of, of what God is giving to the church. And so, you know, as we start to, as we kind of start to close on this, one of the things I, when we went through this at RCF is when you look at the offices of elders and deacons, it's really not that high. Everybody should be attaining to that level of character, that level of maturity, Everybody could, right? There was, what happened in the book of Acts is there was a need that arose and they needed people who were ready. They were needing people who were taking initiative. They're needing people who were already qualified and waiting to be used. <clears throat> and that's what we need. I think we need to restore the office of, of deacon, uh, have it public. But what we need more than anything is men and women who are taking initiative. You don't need the elders' permission to start a prayer meeting. You don't need the elders' permission to get people together and read the Bible. You don't need anyone's permission to evangelize and obey Christ. You really don't. It would be very wise of you to talk to people who are more mature and discuss it with the elders and the leadership to make sure that we're all on the same page, right? Usually when people tell me they want to evangelize, I'm like, well, I got the tracks and here's some books and here's some material and you got it and uh, let me know how it goes. You should probably go out with somebody else. <laughs> like, you should probably go and, you know, not just by yourself if at all possible, but, you know, and, and let me know how it goes. Just go do it. Take some initiative. Raise up, you know. Uh, have, you know, you don't need to, we don't need to be a people who are, you don't need to ask the elders for permission to obey Christ. You don't need anyone else's permission. You do want their insight. You do want their wisdom. We do need to work as a body. But what we need is just men, particularly, to take initiative, to raise up, to be qualified for times of need. And I think we're in, in times of need. We need to send out people to evangelize. We need more people to make disciples. We need more people to do kids' ministry. We need more people to clean the church. We need more people to, yeah, I threw that last one in there for everybody's sake. Uh, and so the point is that these men were ready. They were, I think they were waiting. I think the apostles were looking for opportunity to start this office. And it takes men of, of character and initiative. And so um, as we look at our call to the table, uh, our call to communion, you know, one of the things that we see is that uh, obviously Christ was a servant. He came, I came not to serve, but not, not to be served, but to serve. And Jesus was the greatest of servants. Um, and so we normally, we have three main names for the table. Communion, the Lord's Supper, and the Eucharist. 
And oftentimes we come to the table somber and sad. And we think that repenting looks like we have to hang our head low and come to the table uh, just, I'm a sinner, and this is how it's going to be. I'm going to stare at this weird-looking carpet and, and be sad. But the Eucharist, it's, it's, a, it's the Lord's Supper. It's a supper of celebration and praise. We should examine ourselves to see if we have treated others in the body unfairly, or hold them in contempt, or have bitterness, or anger, or if we have any besetting sins, we should repent of them. We should confess them to the Lord, confess them to other brothers and sisters if needed, but then come to the table joyfully. Christ, as he went to the cross, uh, didn't revile anybody. He didn't speak in return, but uh, he looked for the joy that was set before him, right? And so, Come to the table. Come and dine with Christ. It is, is, a, is a feast of thanksgiving. It's a feast of praise and a feast of joy.